0: scuba obsessed weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear places to dive and scuba new news scuba obsessed episode 204 is recorded live june 19th 2014 Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed, I'm Darren Jilson, coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim?
1: I'm just doing great, thank you.
0: Excellent. We have certainly turned the corner and we are into warmer weather. It has been a little toasty. My air conditioning went out about when uh, Tuesday of this week and... I have not yet recovered. I need to have it fixed, but I want to get all the vehicle repairs done before you go and do that. Nothing nothing like having too many bills out there. And everybody knows I'm chronically cheap, which we will get into when we talk about uh, what's been going on the last few weeks. And also, we had some five-star reviews that we'll be talking about. But before we do that, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news full news article this week and if you're wondering where mac is he's he had another appointment he might jump in a little bit later on if i happen to keep an eye out for him uh, but if not he's earned a week off uh, let's see what well, the first one we have is like is a kayaker And i guess this is good news kayaker is lucky to be alive uh, helps if i hit the right key we have a man who was rescued just off the california coast He was attempting to kayak 2,400 miles or 3,860 kilometers to Hawaii. The Coast Guard said he is very lucky to be alive. The 57-year-old left Monterey on May 30th in a craft filled with a solar panel to power electronics on board. This according to the Coast Guard uh, statement they said on Tuesday. But eight days later, the panel failed and he turned for home. A distress call was made on June 10th and the man started to become disoriented. A MH-65 helicopter was sent from Los Angeles to find him and it was directed the USCG Cutter Aspen to pick him up about 63 miles off Point Conception. The kayaker reported no injuries and was in good health. A voyage from California, Hawaii is a long and treacherous journey for any vessel, exponentially more dangerous for a kayaker. kayaker. His preparedness allowed him to call for help, but he is very lucky to be alive. Coast Guard statement re- reminded all mariners that filing a float plane with a friend would have increased the chances of being rescued.
1: Two thousand four hundred miles by kayak. <laughs> with a- no with no chase boat, no support no. vessel.
0: Nope. <clears throat>
1: um suicidal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stupid as to Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know about that.
1: Let's just see if we can climb Mount Everest barefoot.
0: <laughs> sure. That'd be that'd be a good one, too. And this one kind of goes off of last week. We were asking about uh, nitrogen saturation. We have Jacques Cousteau, not Jacques Cousteau, Fabian Cousteau. And we were talking about, uh, you know, wondering how long he was going to have and that it must be qualified as a saturation dive. And uh, Dan had uh, this on their website. I don't know if this is a recent one or one that's been out there a while, but it's it's good to bring up. And the question is, I work as a dive master in a small island. Last weekend, some of my coworkers went to the local dive chamber for a washout treatment. Despite not having any symptoms, we all dive a lot, but I've never heard of anything like this before. Is this something I should do? And you've probably already read the answer, but uh, w- what were your thoughts if somebody brought that up to you?
1: Um... I think once you reach the surface, you know, you're probably going to bleed it off like you would any other dive.
0: Yeah. Well, here's the answer that Dan gave. They said there's a misconception among some divers, particularly recreationals, dive professionals, and fishermen divers, that a degree of tissue nitrogen saturation will occur over weeks or months of frequent diving activity. Some of these divers believe that they may benefit from occasional washout treatments in a hyperbaric chamber, but that is a fallacy. Such a concept is completely at odds with credible diving and decompression research and is inconsistent with informed clinical practice standards. Efforts to determine the origin of this misunderstanding have thus far proven unsuccessful. Similarly, there are reports of chamber operators actually propagating this myth by offering routine nitrogen desaturation treatments. For a price, of course, decompression sickness can certainly manifest in muscular skeletal pain. So any such preparations within 24 hours of diving would warrant prompt evaluation and perhaps treatment at chamber. However, while chronic pain has many possible causes, diving-related trapped nitrogen is not one of them. Inert gas uptake and elimination during air nitrox and helox diving will obey both Dalton's and Henry's gas laws. Should bubbles be produced Upon decompression, whether symptoms of DCS or not, then Boyle's Law also comes into play. Asymptomatic bubbles may remain in tissues for a day or so at most. Throughout the compression phase of a dive and well at depth, associated increase in inert gas pressure in the breathing gas is delivered to the lungs, Dalton's Law. From there, gradually taken up to the blood and delivered to the body's various tissues, Henry's Law. The rate of inert gas uptake in the blood and other tissues depends on several variables. Key among them is the speed of compression, type of inert gas breathed, and its relative solubility coefficient, body temperature, inert pressure, perfusion, and level of exercise or workload. In recreational diving, nitrogen uptake essentially ends once the diver begins his ascent to the surface. I say essentially because the body's slower tissues, those are less well perfused are supported by the simple diffusion. For instance, this may take on nitrogen during the early and intermittent stages of ascent if their nitrogen pressures remain lower than the bloods. Thus, nitrogen and blood will continue to transfer into these tissues until such time as blood nitrogen levels fall to the levels of those tissues. It is at this point that slower tissues will begin off-gassing. This is why it is important that ascents be mostly directed and largely linear. Diaries that slowly meander back to the surface may accumulate levels of nitrogen and certain tissues in excess of those assumed by the decompression tables. In this way, repetitive dives can lessen the protective capabilities of the table in use. If a diver remains at depth more than 12 to 18 hours in a seafloor habitat in a commercial oil field saturation diving complex, for example, all their tissues, fast, intermediate, and slow, will re-equilibrate with nitrogen or helium at the new depth. This is called saturation diving. Except for timely variations that may occur in the body temperature fluctuations, it is physiologically impossible for any additional inert gas to be taken up without further change in depth. When a diver ascends from a saturation dive, inert gas elimination occurs in the same manner it does at the end of a recreational dive as described by Henry and Dalton's gas laws. Once a diver has returned to the surface, regardless of whether the dive was short recreational dive or a long saturation dive, all tissues inert gases in excess of normal atmospheric pressure will be eliminated over the following 12 to 18 hours, i.e. as body tissue nitrogen levels will be re-equilibrated to the ambient atmospheric pressure after that period, no additional nitrogen above normal atmospheric sea level pressure will remain in the body. Residual nitrogen is never trapped in the body, so there's absolutely no basis to treat divers for chronic nitrogen saturation is a misunderstanding at best and a hoax perpetuating divers at worst. Don't fall for this. Well, that was a long way to get to say that. Yeah, once, the, once you're saturated, you're saturated. and You have to follow tables on the way out. So,
1: yeah, it's pretty much you, you gotta follow. You know, saturation, like you said, saturation is saturation. Once you're once everything is equal, you're not gonna take it up anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, you know? then the, it also goes the other way where essentially they were saying that once you've off-gassed you're off-gassed you're not
1: right. getting any more off-gassed and you're going to off-gas in 12 to 18 hours at mm-hmm. atmospheric pressure you know so they're saying that that comes back into the 24 before you fly because right. when you fly you're actually at a lower pressure than atmospheric exactly so you will off-gas more
0: yeah so if you have any residual nitrogen in there you're going to off-gas a greater volume than you would have had you not dove in the last 24 hours. So that's where the risk is is that and a a plane isn't going to do, you know, safety stops and stuff on its way up. It's it's going up and then a lot of times if you have a an unplanned event where the cabin loses pressure, uh it could be quite a
1: situation. Could, could be quite a situation. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the the big thing here to understand is fast tissues and slow tissues. You know, things like, uh, well, blood is probably one of your fastest tissues that's going to up gas very quickly and off gas very quickly. Where bone and, you know, organs, uh, the more dense things are going to up gas slower and off gas slower. So that's pretty much what it comes down to.
0: This next article we have is a SD card survives a year after camera dropped in Avon. This is out of the UK. Uh, Daniel Bo- Boylan dropped her camera in the River Avon. Oh, Danielle! I said Danielle. <laughs> uh, uh, a specialist diving team from the Stratford British Stratford I uh, Stafford Stratford British Subaquatic Club organized were unable to locate the camera, which contained treasured pictures from her son's 18th birthday taken the night before. Twelve months later, the mother of two has finally been reunited with her camera after contractors brought it out in a dredged river, answered her plea to have one final look, and surprisingly fished it out. Wow, she must have had some pull to get people to go out there with a dredge to find her camera. The camera was no longer usable, but the SD card survived uh, the encounter unscathed. The miraculous of the pictures have all been saved to the family's delight. I was completely godsmacked when the dredgers pulled it out. I had been going down through the year and hoped that someone might know something. And then I read they were dredging the river for the first time in 14 years. I thought, here's my chance. Called the company to tell them the story. Although they weren't supposed to be dredging that part of the river, the two lads from Avon Navigation Trust were wonderful and agreed to have a look. The camera's bright red, so it's quite distinctive. And after they pulled the first scoop out, that was lying on top of the shining sun like a beacon. Uh, drama I guess began. A... Go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the drama began more than a year ago when, having spent a weekend celebrating Shakespeare's birthday with her nephew Sam. Mandy's daughter, Danielle, was hoping to wind down by feeding ducks at the end of her long day. Unfortunately, the four-year-old had other ideas as he prepared to throw his final piece of bread. He fell forward and almost tumbled in the river. Instinctively grabbing the youngster, Danielle dropped the camera she was holding into the water. So she had a choice between the camera and the kid.
1: I guess the camera lost.
0: Yeah. Depending on who you are, you, that may have been the wrong choice. Um, the. So the, the, then she asked the... Some aquatic club and they found two other cameras but they weren't unable to find hers wow that's a lot of effort to go for a camera i'm not saying that we wouldn't have done it
1: well we've had cameras locally that have lasted a year and yeah. been recovered with Tri sd cards
0: yeah we had uh kevin just had his yeah at one time he he lost his second camera and then
1: we, we found, found, found two of one. his cameras the same day. One a year old and one lost that same day.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a potential that I've still got a camera out there with probably four years now floating around. And the rock star of the submarine world has just turned 50. In That's 19- hard to believe. It is. I can remember watching this, but then I, I'm getting close to that same age. In 1956, a team of scientists convened in Washington to discuss the way forward in deep-sea exploration. Uh, the commission did what commissions do best, and it drafted a resolution. In this case, they asked the United States to develop a national program to build underwater vehicles. Eight years later, on June 5, 1964, the team at the Hole Oceanographic Institute commissioned a vehicle that resulted in a little sub named Alvin. Uh, this is in tribute to oceanographer Ailin Vine, in the 50 years since the three-seater mini sub, the only one shared by the Navy and, the, and NOAA National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, became the rock star of the fleet. Uh, let's see how. Let's take a look at this. How many dives it did? 4,678 dives. Spent 32,611 hours, or 1,300 days underwater. The average length of a dive was nearly seven hours. It has carried 14,025 humans, usually one pilot and two scientists per dive, to comb the ocean's floor. It has recovered a hydrogen bomb, lost in Mediterranean after a mid-air plane collision. It discovered unknown life forms. Uh, It helped uh, document the subsurface effects of deep water horizon spill out there in the Gulf. And it famously explored the wreckage of the Titanic. And they they brought up one point, is that it, it... it uh, was lost for almost a year along the bottom.
1: Alvin was lost?
0: Yep. They said uh, it took a dive in July 1967. Oh, wait. No, this is a, a different one. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, in 1967, it was attacked by a swordfish. The creature became trapped in the skin of the sub, and Alvin, with the fish still stuck in its fin, made it to the emergency surface. Scientists later recovered the fish and cooked it for dinner. That <laughs> will teach you. And then in mm. 1968, the cable supporting the sub, while being transferred between two pontoon boats, snapped, and it sank to 4,900 feet. And that w- so that was in 1968. Then in 1969, a team of ships plunged a pref- prefabricated nylon let- net down to where Alvin was, wrapping it around the ship's hull. They hauled it back to the surface, and they opened the sub hatch uh, to discover a sandwich that they believed was still edible, even though nobody did partake of it. They said uh, the freezing temperatures, lack of oxygen at 4,900 feet slowed the visible signs of decomposition. Hmm. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't realize it got lost. That's uh, oh.
1: interesting. I never knew that either.
0: And I believe uh, they, they talk about in the article um, they didn't, but I think Alvin got rebuilt this last couple years, didn't it? I think we've had, we've had articles on that where they, they were remanufacturing it. Don't know. Give a new pressure hole. We'll have to. I'll dig that up. Maybe for next week we'll talk about that. Let's see. This one I I don't know. If the, we'll have to figure out. If this is native advertising or something. Uh, they said a local company making green dive suits. Uh, I think that's local to California.
1: Yep. Local to California DUI making their yep. underwear yep. in California from recycled materials. Yep.
0: And the the thing with DUI. That's an unfortunate acronym for a company to have. Have you ever tried searching for that? And then for the next four weeks, all the ads you get on the internet is for lawyers? <laughs> local company has been Driving keeping scuba under the divers. Influence. Yeah. The local company is keeping scuba divers warm and sometimes cold water off the coast. Uh, this is Diving Unlimited International. Eco Diveware is designed to keep scuba divers warm and has been made from mostly recycled material. What is cool is materials made here in the US, and this garment is, a, is uh, made in the US. So, being able to buy the material here and manufacture is better for everyone, according to DUI president and CEO Susan Long. an effort to be more eco friendly business, Long had to consider cost. In this case, tree hugging is benefiting our bottom line. They make everything local, and advertising comes in a gear guide printed on recycled paper, which is vegetable based inks for every tree they cut down they have to plant three more and using the right kind of inks and right processing side maxfize use of paper so you have minimal waste i want to hear more about the the suit they got a video Sp- but what's that
1: no i'm talking i was going to say speaking of suits yes i uh, just i'll i'll wait
0: <laughs> you you were teeing it up and i'm a little slow uh, but uh, yeah we'll we'll cover that soon enough Anybody who's been following us on Twitter may have an idea what we're talking about. And let's see. Next up is with that green recycled underwater, you may be able to visit the new vast underwater ocean trapped beneath the Earth's crust. Probably not. Located 400 miles beneath Earth's crust is a body of water locked up in a blue mineral called ringwoodite that lies in a transition zone of hot rock between Earth's surface and the core. Interestingly, the water is not in a familiar form to us. It's neither liquid, ice, nor vapor. Geophysicist geophysicist Steve Jacobson from Northwestern University suggests means the water on Earth may get pushed to the surface from below, contradicting previous beliefs that water was delivered via icy comets. Geological processes in the Earth's surface, such as earthquakes or erupting volcanoes, are expressions of what's going on inside Earth out of our sight. I think we are finally seeing evidence for a whole Earth water cycle which may help explain the vast amount of liquid water on the surface of our habitable planet. Scientists have been looking for this missing deep water for decades. decades. Ringwoodite I is the key. key. Crystal it structure, structure makes act like a sponge, sponge, sponge and draws in, in hydrogen water. and trapped water. Jacobs and his colleagues based a finding on a study of the transition zone and underground region <coughs> extending across most of the interior of the United States. Along with Jacobson's lab equipment on rocks simulating the high pressure found deep and underground, the study compiled data from U.S. array of national seism- uh, seismometers across the United States to measure earthquake vibrations.
1: Sounds like somebody's unproven theory.
0: Yeah, it could and be. How
1: are you going to prove it or not prove it?
0: I could just just get a drill. It's only four hundred miles. Yeah,
1: four hundred miles. Sure,
0: hundred miles. Findings were published in the June 13th Journal of Science, if you want to read more about that. And a little bit closer to where we are, somebody asked a question, is there a giant garbage patch in the middle of the Great Lakes? And I think this is in response to people and the garbage patch that is being alleged that's out in the ocean. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a purported island of trash twice the size of Texas, Floating in the Pacific Ocean receives a lot of media attention. Recent reports suggest a similar garbage patch may be developing in Great Lakes as well. However, based on research, we know that the name Garbage Patch is misleading and that there is no island of trash forming in the middle of the oceans. We also know there is no blanket of marine trash that is visible using current satellite or aerial photography. Yes, there are places in the ocean which brings together lots and lots of floating materials such as plastic and other trash, while these types of litter gathered in these areas can vary greatly from derelict fishing necks to balloons, that the kind that is capturing the most attention right now are microplastics. These are small bits of plastics not immediately evident to the naked eye. While we know that the so-called garbage patches in the Pacific Ocean, there could be similar phenomenon in other parts of the world, including the Great Lakes. Recently, research on the distribution of plastics Great Lakes has people now asking the very question. Great Lakes is no mere group of puddles, contains nearly 20% of the world's surface fresh water, and have coastlines longer the east coast of the United States. Within the Great Lakes system, water flows from Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, the lakes further west and highest in elevation east to Lake Huron. From there, it travels to Lake St. Clair, Troy River, Lake Erie. Some 6 million cubic feet of water passes over Niagara Falls each minute and into Ontario before flowing through the St. Lawrence River and the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and then they go on and on and on, which we won't read. You'll have to get from the show notes. But they're basically saying no. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, my thought would have been no, at least nothing visible.
0: Yeah. Well, and they're saying that the great garbage patch in the ocean wasn't visible. And that's what I didn't understand. I thought, you know, you listen to everybody talking about it. They make it sound like it's an island that you can walk across, you know, the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. And my complaint was always like, okay, will somebody get out in the boat, take a picture of it? And while you're out there, why don't you pick some of the trash up? But yeah. uh, but what they're talking about is microplastics or microbeads or plastic particles, which I have to say I'm not a fan of. I don't know why I have no problem with glass, but just little tiny chunks of plastic I'm not too fond of. Uh, but I do think there needs to be some more research into this, or at least some research. I'm, I'm not real happy with what we've seen up to date. And it doesn't seem like it'd be that tough. You know, get a boat, make some hypothesis, <clears throat> a theorem, go out there, prove it, disprove it, and report on it. Yeah. And, and the thing with the Great Lakes is that I think <laughs> even if you had one in the ocean, the way the Great Lakes systems work, it would end up on the shore too quick. The wind blows from one side, blows everything to shore, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I was thinking I the same thing. I mean, there 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 are standard currents in the Great Lakes, but... There's too much influenced by wind. That yeah, there's... You know, I mean, just look at the ice and the ice pack. Yeah, you know, it 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 gets blown from west to east and from north to south. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So
0: you're you're just not going to get anything that's floating in Lake Michigan is going to stay out there for an extended amount of time. I'm sure there's a bunch of buoy companies who would tend to agree. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going to be invaded. I guess this is a good way. Uh, Students from Mumbai are going to be featured in the U.S. meet. This one is going to be held up at Thunder Bay in Alpena, Michigan, June 26th to 28th. Uh, Students from the Mukesh Patel School of Technology Management Engineering uh, made a robotic vehicle, and the loan teams from India selected for the 13th Annual Marine Advanced Technology Education ROV International Competition. So there's going to be teams from all over the world right in our neck of the woods.
1: Yeah, not too far away.
0: And it looks like that's a a moving location, so it's not always in that same spot. So this year it's in Alpena. Uh, There's going to be 66 teams from 16 countries, including Russia, Jordan, Egypt, England, Poland, Hong Kong, Japan, and team members from, uh, oh, that that was somebody's name, which I'm not going to say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i'll avoid that one not the point of the article uh, so cool you know good luck to them good luck to everybody who goes to it uh like to see those things let's see we have i think we'll skip this next one we'll jump into the uh, sea turtles being located relocated to the north carolina shipwreck
1: that sounds interesting let me open that one up
0: this one's in Moorhead City. Rehabilitated turtles from the Pine Knoll Shore Aquarium hitched a ride with a group of scuba divers 30 miles off the shore to be released into the wild over a large shipwreck. We're going to take them out to where it's warmer. We'll work closely with the aquarium. So it's always a fun treat to make them along with us, says University of North Carolina Institute of Marine Science Technician Emily Pickering. The scientist scuba diving. We're mainly with the University of North Carolina Institute of Marine Scientists, however, trips like this are often manned by other volunteers from nearby organizations like the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. The project was led by UNC IMS Ph.D. student Avery Paxton. This must be the acronym week. In total, seven turtles were released, six loggerheads, one glean- green turtle. Two of the logger, larger loggerheads have been fitted with a satellite sensor in the back of their shells. These two turtles named Emma and Carter can be tracked online through the website Sea turtle.org tracking. So let's see what sea turtle, let's see where they are. Hopefully, it's not in a red lobster.
1: Yeah, inside a great white. <laughs> oh, let's see. Yeah, I can't get the websites
0: sitting there grinding away. Uh, so oftentimes, the turtles are on colder water and experience cold stunts. They get the equivalent of hypothermia in humans. So, what we do is we release them into warmer water. The scuba trip is a gather research about different marine habitats off the coast of North Carolina during all four seasons, but scientists say they were excited to be the ones releasing the turtles. Paxton says the shipwreck sites the turtles released over is a large yard oil oiler boat, which is about 174 feet long, and it's submerged in 100 feet of water. I wonder if there's anything significant about them picking a shipwreck. They didn't really say. Okay. I don't know.
1: I was watching the video of them being released and didn't really get into a lot of detail. So, uh, did you go to the website?
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it now. uh, Satellite tracking, Beatrice 2 Loggerhead. is 16 kilometers off the coast of the United States and 176 kilometers from St. Petersburg. But they're not showing anything. I was was expecting to see, like, we got in our buoy. Maybe (laughs) they'd have a Google,
1: let's see... Yeah, you know, kind of a trail of where they've been or where they've gone, or
0: yeah, they've they've got to adopt the Beatrice, so they're collecting money. Let's see here if I go. Oh gosh, now I got terms of use. I got to click through. Well, like I oh, I guess you could stalk. I was gonna make fun of them, but I guess you could be stalking. Uh, And they don't show anything. Come on. Oh, here's a map. So, I'm having a hard time reading this graph they got here. Because they do have data points, so you can see and they show the most recent. Huh. They're they're zoomed in so close on this particular map, I can't get a a sense of where it's at. But cool. And then this next one just goes to prove that no matter who or what you are, there's always something (laughs) that can eat you. A nine-foot great white shark... Yeah, you know, so just like they've tagged these turtles, this is a great white shark off Australia that was tagged. The great white shark went missing, and they think it now may have been devoured by another great white making the Internet rounds this week. The shark disappeared wearing a research tag, which a beachcomber found two and a half miles away from where it had been affixed to the shark. The tag initially attached in November 2003 off southwestern Australia was set to record ambient temperatures and depths. Its data showed that four months after it was attached, a female great white abruptly dove to a depth of 1,903 feet or 580 meters. The ambient temperature surrounding the tag spiked from 46 degrees Fahrenheit to 78 degrees Fahrenheit or 8 degrees Celsius to 26 degrees Celsius. The data suggested an attack. Filmmaker David Riggs, who had been hired to document the tagging project that involved the nine-foot Female shark couldn't believe the data at first. Clearly, something ate the shark, Ridge said in a video clip. What would kill a three meter great white? Riggs asked. The search for the uh, perpetrators, the subject of a Smithsonian Channel show airing later this month. Experts say that speculation a great white devoured the missing female great white is not outside the realm of possibility. Cannibalism in shark is quite common in juveniles and adults but more likely explanation for the surprising tagging data set is that the female great white got caught in the crosshairs of a killer whale. White shark stomach temperatures are thought to be in the order of 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, he explained, maybe even less at great depth in cold water. That's colder than the temperature recorded on the tag. The only other animal it could take on a great white, and that has a warmer ambient internal temperature, is the killer whale. The internal temperatures run 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius, he explained. Thus, it's likely that a feeding killer whale that is ingesting cold seawater and food could easily have a stomach temperature 78. So it sounds like they're saying that because the probe says it got warmer that it was measuring the insides of something warm.
1: Yeah, it was surrounded by inside the belly of the whale.
0: Yeah, wow, glug. Or, of course, I'm sure they, they, they factored this. There's a show I was watching, and I'd seen it a couple times in the last month, where there was a boat off South Africa that had been attacked and they think it was a shark, but it was a shark that's much bigger than what they say the Great white should be getting up to. So is there such thing as a, what are those teeth we go looking for?
1: Megalodons?
0: Megalodon, maybe? It's possible there's still some out there?
1: It's possible there's still some out there, I guess, or something bigger than what they've, been finding
0: yeah they had uh in that same show they showed a a whale that had been bitten in half and they said that the bites measuring the bite marks and everything were bigger than anything they're aware of that was still alive in the water i guess the only thing good out of this is that as people we would be a snack on something that big and they might not even want to bother with us
1: or d'oeuvres. yeah, yeah we just
0: yeah yeah we'd be kind of like uh like sardines to them yeah well, here we have some photos, photos of the week. Of course, I paste it in the wrong spot. There was a national underwater shootout competition. Boy, I didn't do too good a job of picking this article out. There's only one photo. Yeah, you disagree with that one. I don't. I, I don't think that I would have made it.
1: Another one out of the UK. Yeah.
0: I mean, it looks like it looked like me taking a picture of my fins with some with a little cute little seal. I think the cute factor is what got them. And then we have a few videos. Uh, These will be in the the show notes, which I am slowly catching up to. Uh, One was a uh, video of migrating crabs, the underwater kind. Um, This one, I believe, is off Australia. We have a video uh, 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 talking about the West Coast with the starfish die-off. Looks like that starfish die-off is actually picking up speed. Hopefully at some point it will... Somebody will either figure out what's going on or it will end. you
1: got to wonder if it's just a natural cycle or if there's something causing it. Uh,
0: it's hard to tell. Uh, this was reported by uh, Laura James. She had heard, you know, she's been watching this for a while. She's out there uh, in the Seattle area. And she'd been receiving reports that uh, a wide array of uh, starfish or sea stars are showing signs of the wasting disease. So on Sunday she took her camera rig out to Sun Rock, which is a hot diving spot near Hoodsport, Washington, and uh, she found and it was is quite bad. This she said the speed that it hit the area baffles me. Last week the stars in Hood Canal were doing reasonably well. How could it hit everything all at once overnight? She dove from the shore to a depth of about a hundred feet and the stars at all depth appeared symptomatic. They looked deflated, weak and floppy, arms had fallen off, in some cases only globs of melted stars remained. Hood's Canal is already an ecosystem on the edge, James said. How is it going to handle losing all of its starfish? Back in January, James uh, started the website Six Starfish and asked people to check into starfish in their waters. Since then, she's received reports from divers and beachcombers around the world telling her about the health of the local starfish. These citizen scientists have sent emails, uploaded pictures, tagged Six Starfish to social media sites. Lately, the reports have been picking up and she said many are coming from the southern edges of the Puget Sound and especially Hood Canal. And she was fairly early on this, uh, and this is going, as she said, from Alaska to Mexico. So You
1: know, I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the radiation problem from the tsunami in Japan.
0: You know, I've heard, you know, there was one report we had a few weeks ago where somebody said that they... They couldn't rule that out as a cause. You know, I, you, know, you never say never, but just the dilution, I mean, they would have to be extremely sensitive because the radioactive material, unless unless you had a strong current, if you had a current that was picking it up and it was staying, you know, you know all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the thing with the radioactive material also tends to be heavy. So it likes to collect and fall out of suspension fairly easily. So and I'll leave it up to somebody with a little bit more training in that area than I do. But you know, I, I don't, my gut instinct says this is not environmental. I, I believe it to be more of a disease. Because if it was something like that, let, so let's, let's say it was radiation or some sort of chemical. The chem, you, what would cause everything at the same time to go it would have to have reached a critical concentration, and everybody would have yeah. to be infected the same. It, it it feels much more like a disease than an environmental cause. Now, environmental cause can weaken animals, which you, we we will tend to see. You know, anybody who raises animals for a living will tell you that stress, you know, diet, bad food will reduce their ability to fight off a disease, and then you can have problems. Uh, so. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. So, you know, the only thing we can hope is that, you know, it's kind of like a, a forest after a fire. You know, it's tragic that the fire happens, but then, you know, something blooms in, in what's left.
1: Yeah, it creates new growth. And that's why I wonder if it might just be Norton, you know, the cycle of life.
0: Those things that happen. So, yeah, that's, we can only hope. And then the last video, uh is uh, Fabian Cousteau received a visit from Sylvia Earle and his father, uh, which is what was his father's name again? John Claude? Is that? Am I mixing them up? Here, I better go pull it up. Not sure. Yeah, I was just gonna go. I used to know all that stuff. They they need to have a show again. i mm. the under the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I miss that. And that's where it got a lot of these a lot of these items the easier to follow. So let's see, uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, so uh, so jean michael Cousteau, which was Jacques Cousteau's son and Fabian Cousteau's father, along with uh, Sylvia Earle went down and visited uh, Fabian in the Aquarius off of Key Largo, Florida. Fabian Custona's team are also documenting the effects of living underwater long-term, uh, which can take its toll, especially given cramped quarters and days passing without any real sunlight. So I did watch the video. There wasn't really anything to clip and share. If you can, you can watch it. It's 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 interesting, not action-packed, but uh, it was nice to see them all together and talking. Uh, the one thing Fabian said is uh, his grandfather called it the silent world, and he said the one thing he noticed is that it was very noisy. That there's always something going on, making noise. And maybe that, I wonder if that's because he's in that Aquarius. And you've got all the systems, you know, scrubbing air and cycling. And then he also had a uh, signed but damp copy of his uh, grandfather's book. Yeah. So, and they show it there. So that's an, that's another clip. That was on the TED blog, blog.ted.com. So that does it for Scuba in the News. And Let's see. uh Let's see, did you, did you get any uh diving in this last week
1: no i have not it's been a couple of weeks actually yeah no i did not get wet this past weekend yep
0: and, and i didn't either my scuba gear is in the vehicle that's having the transmission repaired uh but i did which you were alluding to earlier i did actually and we almost i should have had a drum roll queued up here but I did get a dry suit. A what? I know. Yeah, a dry suit. Can you believe a, a that? A real dry suit? It's a real dry suit. As I turn my chair, I am looking at it now. It is red, and it's uh, Mac would be happy. He'd approve. He did approve. It, it's a Viking.
1: It, I was going to say, if, if it's red, it must be a Viking.
0: It's a Viking. And as the history of the dry suit goes, yes, it is. I did not buy it new uh it was bought by a gentleman he he used it about six or seven times hung it up uh the the material's in excellent condition and then kevin bought it and uh he dove it a few times in fact last time i went diving that's what he was diving in. he was diving in that dry suit but that, he was complaining that the feet were too big for him
1: yeah that suit was rather large on him yeah he had some Let's, there was a lot of opportunity for him to get trapped there in that suit. Yeah. yeah.
0: And for me, good or bad, there's. I don't have as much uh, room in it as he did. My feet, it was the perfect size for my feet. Uh, so I've still got to go and trim the seals on it. It had, it had uh, new seals put in because uh, I guess one had gotten torn somewhere over the years, so new seals have been put in it. Mm.
1: Well, you and, know what they uh, say about guys with big feet.
0: Certainly do, and it's all true.
1: And they have big bellies too.
0: Yep, exactly. So I am looking forward to trying that out and I hopefully I can maybe do it this weekend. If I get my transmission fixed the the uh, vehicle's got the rest of my dive gear
1: in it. You could where's it at? You could pick it up, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I've, already, gear.
0: I've already gone and picked stuff up once, but it was the transmission is supposed to be completed on Wednesday and here we are tomorrow will be Friday, so I'll have to go over there and, and bug them. You know, emptied it, it out, yeah, emptied it out
1: because we're diving Saturday.
0: Saturday, so what are we diving on?
1: Uh, I'm going out to Max Wreck and the Claybanks on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, that'd, that'd be... Doing an afternoon dive. Okay. We're gonna plan is to meet at the DNR dock at three o'clock. I've got four divers lined up on my boat. Uh huh. I told Bob and let him know so.
0: Okay. Hopefully we can I get can. out. Yeah.
1: I'm trying to remember who I got signed up. I got. I think Rick and Richard and Dan look good and uh Robert and me, so that's oh, five right. on my boat.
0: Wow, yeah, you're got you're definitely full.
1: Yeah uh, I got a full boat, two tanks. yeah. yeah, I got a full boat. still yeah.
0: there? yeah'm okay. I'm, I'm still here, yeah, I'm just uh, trying to queue up uh, something and then on Wednesday we had a dive club meeting which I didn't make. I was helping Mac. Uh, he did a presentation on Pawpaw Lake, which I recorded. And we may release. The problem is that air conditioning wasn't working in the building, and they had two giant fans, so it sounded like helicopters. And then, yeah, it it was a learning experience. So we'll see. We we it, we may post it. I was I wasn't planning on doing a video.
1: Mm. Uh, hey, I've got an interesting string for you to look at. Uh huh. Uh, there's a 20 degree temperature differential, actually almost 25 degree temperature differential on the cook buoy, which is very close to max Rec. The
0: uh-huh. surface
1: temp is reading 70, 69.62 degrees. Yeah. And the bottom temperature is reading 45.
0: So 45 on That's the a bottom. 25
1: degree temperature difference between 45 on the bottom, 70 on the surface.
0: You know, my prediction when I see that, awesome conditions.
1: Awesome visibility. That's right.
0: That, so I, my prediction, if provided it doesn't flip between now and then.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it will.
0: No, I, th- I think we're, we're this late spring, we should be good. Uh, yeah. Now, it's we did true. have, let's see, when we had a good storm, was it yesterday? So the Lake Michigan, we haven't had a lot of wind, though, even though we've no. had a lot of rain.
1: Yeah, there's been some rain, but there hasn't been much much wind, and they're not predicting a whole lot of wind for the rest of the week. So, Saturday, you know, ought to be hopefully a a good day to get out there with some nice visibility. We may have to dodge a thunderstorm here or there, but, you know, I'm not the tallest guy to stand in the boat, so I'm not too worried about it.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So, let's see if my prediction's right. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, do you have anything uh let's how about how's the preserve doing preserves doing okay
1: we're getting a few more of the wrecks uh we're getting reports that the wrecks are being buoyed not quite sure who's doing them but people are calling or sending us messages that this wreck is buoyed and that wreck is buoyed and so we just keep passing that information on as we get it
0: yeah we'll have to we we'll have to add that are you adding those details to the website or
1: uh, as I get them, yeah, I've got to get caught up on a couple others. But I, I, as I get them, I've been putting them in. So could certainly use some more financial support to, so we can get our permits and do our uh, sand moving project. But we'll wait and see how the funds come in to see if we can get support for that.
0: Yep. And if you want to see what the sponsor site uh, sites, uh, sponsor sites, sponsor sites, sponsor dive shops are go to www.diveswmup.com and we have a sponsor scuba dive shops links and let's see who what's the next shop up on the list we talked about divers incorporated we're now to i think we're to Wolf's, aren't we Wolf's. i'd have
1: to look at the list i i missed yeah i wasn't able to make the show last week
0: yeah i don't think we covered it last week so uh we got wolf's diver supply out of Benton Harbor, Michigan 250 West Main Street. That's kind State. of
1: our local shop. It's a our...
0: Yep. And when we, when yep, we we'll... said yeah, when you said Richard being on the boat, he's the manager for the dive shop. Uh and and it's and it's nice to have Richard Long and work in the shop because he's gung-ho and into scuba diving, so. Yes. Uh, uh, the, yeah. the, and the, and the thing with our local dive shop, you know, sometimes I like to give them grief, they have to make a living, and where they make living is not on scuba it's on inflatable
1: boats that local shop yeah they it's you know I'll, I'll give a nice call out to wolfs they it's not just a dive shop it's a uh, marine store that rivals any marina marine store i've been in oh yeah wolfs has new year new gear used gear uh you name it if wolfs doesn't have it you can't find it
0: yeah, the uh, what what's the What's the shop that the that we used to have there in town? The little tiny one. Uh, island. Yeah, is that West Marine? West Marine. Yeah, West Marine. Yeah. So if you're used to going in the West Marine, we're called that. That's kind of like the Walgreens of scuba diving, not scuba diving of marine supply. Yeah. you know, nice little displays, and you can go mm-hmm. get some some line and some lawn chairs, and you know, if you've got a little twelve foot boat, that's where you go. Wolf's is not that store. I mean, Wolf's has got literally everything. He's got stuff that was new when they made it 40 years ago. Uh, They've got new boats, used boats. Yeah,
1: uh, Wolf's buys surplus lots and closeouts by the truckload. So if you've, you know, it's kind of a mix of a flea market and a West Marine in a warehouse. It's about the best way I can describe it. Uh, they've got new, they've got used, uh, they'll get you anything that, you know, you find it in the catalog, they'll get it. Um, plus if you're looking for something unique or odd or older, you know, you're, you're going to find it there. So, and the dive shop is, uh, there's a lot of history hanging in the dive shop and much of it has come from the mud club. There's some, uh, do it yourself homemade scuba kits from the 50s, where they would take old, well, I guess they were compressed gas cylinders. I don't even think they were truly air cylinders at the time, but compressed gas cylinders and a, some sort of um, compressed gas manifold, and it was a do-it-yourself out of a popular mechanics magazine, do-it-yourself scuba regulator, and they've got one of those on display there that if you look at Popular Mechanics or Popular Science from, I think it's 67, 64, somewhere in there, they had the Build It Yourself, and they've got one of those on display. They've got a lot of uh, definitely vintage gear on display, not for sale, but on display that's been collected over the years, uh, along with some very new stuff. I think they're carrying, uh, what's that new line of dry suits and wetsuits they picked up this year?
0: Oh, is that? Uh, let's see. According to their website, they have Aqualung, Tusa, Harvey, Viking, Beagle, Bear, Sea Life. The inflatables are Zodiac, Avon, and A B inflatables. God, the the, the dry suit. Because Bob just bought one. Yeah, yeah. Because they've they've really stocked up. That was my complaint. You know, not that I was buying a brand new dry suit, but they didn't really have much. They they do they do a lot of the suits for the local uh, fire departments and dive teams so they carry the vikings uh they had the hmm. uh they had bear uh they had some of the what harvey yeah isn't that? that's had what had i'm talking Har- so harvey's yeah they had the harvey uh and then they had uh was it waterproof
1: maybe it was i know it's a, a relatively new line of reasonably priced i won't say inexpensive but you know yeah. it, it's it, it's cheaper than the White's fusions um, yeah because
0: because what he did is uh there's, he carries the in stock the three different levels of the of this particular dry suit. The entry level he got in all sizes. So if you want to see how the the suit fits and runs, he's got a suit there for you to try on. Right. The expensive ones he only ordered enough so that he could be a dealer. And then you try the inexpensive on, go that's the one I want and then you get the options. Cause if you're going to spend that much in a dry suit, odds are you're going to want it nearly custom or get the options on it. And that's a lot mm-hmm. of money for a dive shop to have, you know, for a $2,500 dry suit to, to have it sitting there for two or three years. And that was always the complaint I had because of how he bought stuff. You could tend to get some old inventory and they've been working their way through that the last few years. So the inventory is much fresher than it had been. Um, so, yeah, if you're in the area, it's worth going down there. Okay. And yeah. over the and years. And free has, air fills
1: if you're a member yep. of the preserve. Yep. Yeah, he's given at least two
0: free air fills for going in there. Uh,
1: Diveswmup.com.
0: Yep, and their website is com, and uh, they'll have a link on there for the, the dive site. And they also, I think he has a link in there to the Mud Club.
1: Yes, so, yeah, so, they've been a great supporter of the Mud Club over the years.
0: Yeah, so you get to see some of that, and, and plus some of the some of the treasures that Mac has found find their way into the the store window. So do
1: you the uh, sword is there. Yep. yep. Mac's magical sword.
0: So how much is the membership to get all that free air?
1: Uh, Twenty five dollars for a single member. So PayPal, Credit card or print it off and. Send it in, or just go to our contact us page. Let us know if you'd like us to fax you or mail you a paper application, and we'll be happy to do that. Excellent.
0: Well, as always, we love those. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, we will find a way to take your money.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do not worry. And as always, we love to have those uh, five star iTunes reviews, and we have we we got a couple. Uh, and some of them, I apologize, I, I don't check them every week. So one is back from May 13th, 2004. And the title is I Love It, John B. from uh, Middleville, Michigan. And he says, my daughter and I both got our sea cards on vacation in the Keys this past winter. We enjoyed diving a great deal and excited about it. Having returned home, we began doing research on diving in the unsalted waters around Michigan. To learn more of the sport, we searched for podcasts on scuba. We were very pleasantly surprised to find one that we then realized it's local. This is a great podcast. It covers everything diving, from recent dives to disasters. It's all covered. I'm sure these guys have a tremendous amount of dive experience, but they still talk with the excitement of newbies like me on the first dive. I love hearing about local dive opportunities and new gear. The guys are great to listen to. It is like hearing your buddies talk about it. I hope to catch up with them at some point and try one of the great local dives they talk about. So, yeah, we look forward, John, having you and your daughter come on out sometime.
1: Well, let's see where Middleville, Michigan is. Yeah, I have no idea where Middleville is. I'm looking it up right now. Middleville, Michigan.
0: Oh, that's close.
1: Is it really? Yeah, it's south uh, south of Grand Rapids.
0: That's just around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if he's south of Grand Rapids, oh my goodness, there's there's plenty of diving. Oh sure, yeah. And uh, up coming up on the list is going to be the now it's not, you know, for a new diver less than sixty dives I wouldn't recommend the Ironsides right away. But we're going to be up that way next weekend. Ironsides. Yep.
1: Next weekend's the Ironsides dive. Yeah, that's uh, looking forward to that one.
0: And then the next review we have is this one was on June 10th, 2014. And it says, Great Show. This is by Lear Clark. Whoever said that you can't teach an old dog new tricks needs to listen to Scoob Obsessed. The first time I listened, I wondered, where were the mermaids, all the references to movie trivia and the travel stories like other big shows and have? And I moved on. Nevertheless, as I listened to a few more episodes, I quickly became aware that this is a different kind of podcast. The more I listened to Scoob Obsessed, I quickly realized, that listening to program is like eating donuts. You know you should only eat one, but most people will come back for more. Scuba obsess is made up of three primary divers. Darren Gilson, the host, who has a relaxing, easy-to-listen-to radio voice. I, I don't really consider myself a radio voice, but I guess. Well, he okay. start,
1: What's that? Uh, go ahead. I, let's hear what he had to say about the rest <laughs> of us.
0: Okay. He starts each show by reading any news involving Scuba The News. Darren is a hoot to hear. Either by design or accident, he manages to murder the pronunciations of the last half of the words of the most popular dive destinations. Uh, he is a likable chap, loves scuba diving, and a great associate with diving, but quickly becomes apparent that he is too cheap to ever actually buy himself a dry suit. Until last week.
1: Until so, last week.
0: Yeah, so about the time he was writing this is when I bought the dry, the dry suit. For over a year now, he's talked about it, but has yet to purchase one. The highlight or low light of each show, depending on how your take is, is the scuba joke told by Darren at the end of every show. Most are old jokes that I have all heard before with the addition of the words, a scuba diver, inserted as needed. He figured me out. Oh, let's see, I lost my place again.
1: Um, Skype is acting up on me. Yeah, well, this is
0: probably me that's doing okay. it. Uh, uh, Mac, his co-host, brings all the talent and experience of a diver who seems to have made at least the greater part of his living underwater. Ask a diving-related question, Mac probably knows. Occasionally, Mac needs to get reined in as he gets sidetracked on political topics. Not that I disagree with him. I don't. But a first-time listener might think they've just turned into Fox News radio network. Mac sometimes seems to have a hard time figuring out that talk show works as he is often dropped or stepped on by the other hosts of the show. Mac... How about spending a little time telling us about your plane so we'll have to let Mac know that we have a quest to hear about his plane make and model where it is hampered Oh, hampered hangered hampered that's for clothes. how about uh, some of your skydiving stories Jim the third member of the show happens to be a West Michigan Preserve with a whoops uh, seems to be involved with all things club and Michigan Preserve related. His role seems to be one of trying to recruit new members to keep listeners updated on the happenings on the West Michigan Preserve. With all the above comments, one might think I don't enjoy this scuba obsessed. This is not true. I have found that when I miss an episode, I have to download them for later listening to get caught up on the West Michigan happenings. While not part of the inner circle of chatroom friends and fanatics, I do listen more than I would like to admit to. I'm sure a large portion of the audience also listens outside the chatroom as I do. I hope that Review gives you uh, the three, the pat in the back you deserve. Hey, guys, keep up the good work. The hours spent listening to Scuba Access makes long drives and evenings spent at work fly by. I would like to meet the crew in person someday, but their exact location appears to be a mystery. All I know is that Darren lives close to the Round Barn. Yes, I listen carefully, and as I go to Muskegon every summer, I know where the Round Barn is. I've tried to meet Darren in Grand Haven last summer, but he didn't make it. You guys should know the show I'm talking about. Thanks for filling the void between my dives. You're welcome, Oasis, and vast Void of Scuba Diving podcast. Hope you continue to podcast. Maybe someday we can all dive max wreck together. Sincerely, Lee R. Clark, San Diego area, California. We certainly appreciate that, Lee. And I think you you pretty much nailed it right on.
1: Yeah, just a bunch of old farts who love diving and get out and do it. And and enjoy talking about it.
0: And I feel bad that we missed you. I should have uh, gone up and made that show. Hopefully this, I I say that, I probably, everybody's listening to the show. Hopefully I can make it to all the shows next year. I think I'll be in a better position. The challenge is is kids. About the time you don't, the the kids aren't taking up the time. Who knows when that will be. So we love those five-star reviews. Uh, You can also leave reviews for us on TalkShoe. We're Show 73759 uh, let's see. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Smart Radio, uh, when you download the app. If if they give you a field to type in, type in scuba, and that will get you to us. We're also on the WRVO Radio Network. Thank Rich Viola for having us on that network again. uh Let's see, and let us know how you listen. Yeah, I I know there's a lot more listening than what we get stats for. So we'd love to know how you do it. What type of device are you listening on? You're listening on Android you're listening on iOS you're using the podcast app we're always interested to hear about that uh, I mean do you listen directly from the website our website is www.scoobobsess.com you now are you getting the shows there and if you do that's I apologize because it's you have to look a little little there to find them uh, the little app in the window is usually updated so Thursday nights usually sometime around midnight is when the it gets uploaded. Uh, The player in the show notes, that can be a few weeks later sometimes. Uh, So that just about does it. Do we have anything else we need to plug?
1: No. Support your local dive shop. It's summertime. If you're not getting wet, why not?
0: Yeah, it certainly need to be getting out there and into the water.
1: So I think we
0: are to that time of the show. Don't think we can delay it any longer. And in honor of the reviews, I'm not going to add scuba diver to this next one.
1: Ah, uh, I mean, come on! It's got to be bad scuba joke.
0: It's got to be bad scuba joke.
1: Yeah, so it has to okay. involve a scuba diver. Or have something to do with scuba.
0: Okay, okay. I, th- I think I can, I can do that. I can fit that in. We're, we're, we're wily and crafty that way.
1: Okay, I'm ready. So and hopefully geez. Skype will hang on. <laughs>
0: A long time ago, in communist Russia, there was a famous weatherman named Rudolph. He always had 100% accuracy rate for his forecast of the Russian weather conditions. His people loved him and respected him for all his faultless, faultless foresight. He was particularly good at predicting rain. One night, despite clear skies, he made the prediction on the 6 p.m. news broadcast that a violent storm was approaching. It would flood the town in which he and his wife lived, and they would have to go scuba diving. He warned the people to take proper precautions and prepare for the worst. After he arrived home later that evening, his wife met him at the door and started arguing him that his weather prediction was one of the most ridiculous things she had ever heard. This time, she said, he had made a terrible mistake. There wasn't a cloud anywhere within 10 miles of the village. As a matter of fact, that day had been the most beautiful day the town had ever had, and it was quite obvious to everyone that it simply wasn't going to rain. He told her she was to be quiet and listen to him. If he said it was going to rain, it was going to rain. He had had all his Russian heritage behind him and he knew what he was talking about. She argued that although he came from a proud heritage, it still wasn't going to rain. They argued back and forth for hours. So much they went to bed mad at each other. During the night, sure enough, one of the worst rainstorms hit the village, the likes of which they had never seen. That morning when Rudolph and his wife arose, they looked out the window and saw all the water that had fallen that night. See, so said, Rudolph, I told you it was going to rain. His wife admitted, once again, your prediction came true. But oh, I don't know, just how were you so accurate, Rudolph? To which he replied, you see, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You see, there was this, maybe I should have waited for December for that one.
1: We'll just recycle it then.
0: Yeah, we'll pretend like we haven't used it before.
1: We've done that before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, who was? But, that was a bad one. (laughs) So there you go, Lee. And we did fit scuba in there. Mm Mm-hmm. So next time, go out there and get wet.
1: Stay safe. And pass the word, Darren bought a dry suit.